Father, whatever you've put on our hearts, you put Ukraine, the media project, Costa Rica, you've put that little country, that country represented by the little flag that we just picked up. We want to intercede for our world, but may it begin with us. As the song says, may there be peace in the world and may it begin with us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Wednesday mornings, bright and early, I slide in to the church here for a prayer time. I've been listening to AM station 1510. 1510 AM and, and early in the morning, pre-dawn darkness, HMS Richards preaches a sermon. HMS Richards, of course, is well appreciated on our campus. We've got a building, a school that bears his name for the impact ministry that he had right here. Of course, Voice of Prophecy just down the road. Well, he tells the story, and he told it this last week, about an executive, a businessman, who was back in the day working with a pen salesman, a pen salesman, to order a large quantity of pens. It was a very lucrative deal for the salesman, and he was very pleased to to be filling out this contract. Mid-contract, the executive excuses himself saying he's not interested anymore. Well, there's a bit of a, what do I do next? The salesman kind of hovers around for a minute, confused at what just happened. It was mid-filling out the contract, and eventually the salesman packs up and leaves. As the executive heads out that evening, his administrative assistant catches him and asks, what was that about earlier today? What happened with the pen salesman? Ah, the executive said, it was mid-contract. While he was filling out the contract, I noticed the pen he was using was not a pen his company sells. And I said to myself, I'm not going to buy from a salesman who won't use his own pen. What a mockery it would be for a community of faith that proclaims an allegiance to the prophets and doesn't use them. What a mockery it would be for us to the world to stand here saying, we believe the prophets. We, believe, we are Bible-based Christians. What's the Bible written? It's prophets, all right. Easy to get here from there. What a mockery it would be to, to us from the world, of course, for us to say we are Bible-believing Christians, but not use the prophets or use the very ones they pointed us to. What am I talking about? The prophets were clear that the prophets that would impact the the people of God would not just be contained in the sacred canon of Scripture, that is, in the Bible. The Bible itself speaks forward to the fact that there will be prophets post-Bible. It's one of the most repeated, it is the most repeated gift, gifts given to the church. Paul, in every occasion, says, by the way, Prophets are a gift to the church. Jesus, Matthew 24, in his greatest concern for the people living right before he comes, says, I need you to be careful. Be careful because you're going to need to pay attention to the prophets and there will be an abundance of false prophets. I need you to pay attention then to the prophets and be sure that you are laying hold of the true prophets. Jesus' greatest concern right before he comes back is what we are doing with the prophets. So what a mockery it would be if we as a a community of faith proclaim to be Bible-based Christians but do not use the very prophets that are included in Scripture nor the prophets they point forward to post-Scripture. 
I believe, based on Scripture, that there will be prophets that are raised up post-Scripture, post-canon of Scripture. They may be prophets that are called for a short time in their life, maybe even unrecognized in their lifetime. That's not unheard of for a prophet to be not recognized or appreciated in their lifetime. But he will also, that is God, will also call others to be prophets that might be recognized and might be called for their entire lives. In fairness, a good conversation to have would be, well, what constitutes a prophet? What are the tests that the Bible gives us to know what and who is a prophet? That would be a fair conversation, and we hope to have part of that next Saturday afternoon at 4.30 in our presentation conversation. We're going to have part two. But, but this morning, I want to introduce to you one who I believe was a prophet post-Bible, the, meaning she qualifies as a prophet. It's Ellen White. She was born November 26, 1827. She was born to a farmer and a hat maker there in, in Maine, just west of Portland, in a little commu- just outside of a little community uh, called Gorham. Gorham is about 19,000 in population today, but back then it was much, much smaller. And as you know, Maine, Maine, everybody that lives in Maine lives in the southeast portion of Maine. You go northwest Maine, and there is just nothing as far as people go. I shared with First Service, one of the items on my bucket list is to spend seven days, uninterrupted, seven days, one week, next to a lake, in a cabin in northern Maine. I've got it on my bucket list. It's just seven days, reading, thinking, canoeing, hiking. Well, she was born up in that neck of the woods, as they say. She ate children in all. She was the youngest, along with her twin sister, Elizabeth. Ellen and Elizabeth were the two youngest of their brothers and sisters. One of the most known stories and impactful, pardon the pun, of of Ellen White's life, Ellen Harmon at the time, was when she was nine years old and she was struck in the face by a rock, a rock thrown by assuming someone who didn't mean as much damage as they caused. She was unconscious for weeks. Her studies interrupted, and from there on out, her studies were sporadic and intermittent. It changed her life. Gave her struggles, left her seriously injured. She's quoted. This is her response. This is her testimony of what that moment meant. It's recorded in Review and Herald back in 1884. She writes, I'll put it on the screen, this misfortune, this event of being struck in the face with a rock, which for a time seemed so bitter and was so hard to bear, has proved to be a blessing in disguise. The cruel blow which blighted the joys of earth was, what was it? It was the means of turning my eyes to heaven. I might never have known Jesus had not that sorrow that clouded my early years led me to seek comfort in him. Powerful testimony. It reminds me of Joni Erickson Tata, the Olympic diver. Broke her neck. It says today, if it had not been for a broken neck, I don't know where my life would be today. Ellen White says, that moment, that bitter and painful experience was an opportunity God used to point my attention heavenward. And how quick, beloved, how quick we are to complain and point our fists towards heaven in protest of suffering or pain that we experience while heaven must just say, be patient. We're going to bring something beautiful, something marvelous, something eternal out of that suffering. Just be patient. It hurts, no doubt. But be patient. Let God work his miracle. Ellen White became the most translated female nonfiction author in the history of literature and the most translated American nonfiction author of, of either gender. 
The Smithsonian Magazine named Ellen White among the, most, the top 100 most influential, significant Americans of all time. At 87, she passed away at her home in St. Helena, California. Eventually, she was buried with her husband in Oak Hill Cemetery. And anybody from Michigan knows, right there outside of Battle Creek, or really in Battle Creek, there's that little Oak Hill Cemetery. Been there several times myself. Stood at the graveside. Spotted with trees. If you go in the winter, of course, barren trees with leaves strewn around the, yard, the lawn. But it's the legacy that she left. I'd like to point our attention to. Picked up a book that I'd only poked at previously in my life, written by Herbert Douglas back in the 1990s. He was commissioned, he was a professor and administrator in the church. He was commissioned to do research and to write a book. There had been books written, and, and sure, there was plenty of, of them out there, but they commissioned him from, from new eyes to, to look at her life and her ministry. So Herbert Douglas, in his book, Messenger, of the Lord, which I would unabashedly encourage you to pick up. It's an easy read. It just flows, and it's just it's 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 engaging and and and, and galvanizing. He he wrote, and and I have never read this before. Put it on the screen. Listening to Ellen White, that is this is his take. This is her legacy. Listening to Ellen White is like hearing Handel's Messiah page after page. The Spirit of Christ pervades her ministry. I had this in my notes last night, and as I was tucking away the sermon yesterday evening preparing for our grow group that meets at our home on Friday evenings, I was, I was listening to the Hallelujah Chorus. Melanie walked in kind of confused at why I was listening to the Hallelujah Chorus, just kind of blasting it in the office, uh, in my home office. I, I read her this. Can you believe? Now, the Hallelujah Chorus is just, of course, the climax of Handel's Messiah, but this is beautiful. Page after page, Douglas writes. And then he keeps going. Consistency, clarity, and coherency mark her devotion to her best friend. If you have been exposed to the writings of Ellen White and have found her inconsistent or incoherent, I would only challenge you to put away the references that sometimes people make and is abusive to, to someone's work and just go read it for yourself. We've done very well at taking a line here and taking a line there and then somebody else on the other side of the aisle takes a, a line there or takes a line there. We do it to scripture as well. And, we, and then we battle the lines out. Oh yeah? Well, check out this line. Woo! And then the next side comes back and says, oh, not so fast there. We've got this one. I would challenge you to engage it yourself. And you will find, I believe, consistency, clarity, and coherency mark her devotion to her best friend. More than all else, it seems Ellen White, still reading from Douglas, helps to satisfy our human craving for grace. In personal letters and magazine articles and speaking to large audiences, her grace-oriented messages enlarge God's embrace of grace to needy, weary hearts. For those who listen, Ellen White has the surest mark of the spirit of prophecy. She bore witness to Jesus. And that's John the Revelator saying the testimony or the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. The best summary of a life lived. Someday, I want it to be said of me that in my life, there was consistency, clarity, and coherency that marked my devotion to my best friend. In a larger sense, in Christian literature, now just kind of backing up to Christian literature, Ellen White brought something to the table that had been missed by most theologians, especially up to that time. So she actually contributed to the wider body of theology and spiritual writings. What was it that she brought? She brought the, the perspective of a great controversy. 
that hadn't been the, the lens that many had, had seen through. But once you put those glasses on, there's a systematic theology, there's a systematic uh, understanding of who God is that comes alive. She presents this understanding of a great controversy, a war that started, not an international war, not just, I should say, an international war, but an intergalactic war. There was a war started by an angel crazed, crazed with selfishness. He focused on character assassination. Oh, beloved, watch yourself on how you speak of others. It's, it's remnants at times of a crazed angel. This crazed angel argued that the universe had been deceived and God wasn't who they thought he was. He wasn't safe to follow. He wasn't trust, faith. He wasn't safe to trust or safe to obey. He wasn't safe at all because he wasn't a God of love. He was self-serving and everything was just about him. And so Ellen White takes this masterfully and unpacks scripture by pointing out from beginning to end how the great controversy is the theme of scripture. And in, in her, arguably, as I would, in her magnum opus work, the Conflict of the Ages series. Five books, starting with Patriarchs and Prophets, Prophets and Kings, moving then into the New Testament, Desire of Ages, and Acts of the Apostles, and finally the Great Controversy. Those five books, a, a work, a, a superb work that outlines the narrative of the Great Controversy, starting with pre-creation and the fall and ending with, with post-recreation, the redemption of man. She outlines this. Let me just open to you what many of you have already read. Page one of Patriarchs and Prophets, the very first page of this five-book series, The Conflict of the Ages, outlining the, the grand conflict. This is how she opens that narrative. God is Love, And she's quoting 1 John 4, 16. His nature, his law is love. It ever has been and it ever will be. The high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose ways are everlasting, changes not. With him is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And she's quoting Isaiah and Habakkuk and James. Every manifestation of creative power is an expression of infinite love. The sovereignty of God involves fullness of blessing to all created beings. That's how she sets the stage for this conversation that she brings to the table about the great controversy. No other writer had brought those kinds of lenses before. Wait a minute. There's a great controversy and we can see everything through those lenses. She introduces two very important things in this opening statement. One is that God is love. Is. Not loving. He is love. That's who his essence is. Love is God. And then she introduces in this final line, the sovereignty of God in, involves fullness of blessing to all created beings, intergalactic, every created being in the galaxies, in the universe, is a recipient of God's love. Thus is also, also a recipient of this crazed angel that is accusing God of not being love. It just happens to be that we are the ones that believed him. Between that opening paragraph and the final paragraph, she outlines this relentless pursuit of God to be in a loving covenant relationship with the people he created. That's his goal. I want, to be, I want to be in love with you and you with me. I want to be in a covenant with you. But lies have been told. Lies have been believed. Terrible lies. We're not talking about stretching the truth or a little white light. We're talking about lies that have caused death and suffering to this planet. To counter the work and to finish the great controversy. To counter the work of that crazed angel and to finish the conflict, I believe God poured into Ellen White prophetic understanding, visions of what should happen on this planet to help finish the work. 
God says, I'm going to use you and you are going to play a part in finishing this great intergalactic controversy. What kind of things are we talking about? What did Ellen White bring to the table? Through the lenses of the great controversy, she brought the health message. The understanding that we, our bodies, are the temple and we can live healthy to the best of our abilities and we are to guard them. It is a sacred responsibility to guard our bodies. And then through that was birthed the largest not-for-profit Protestant, that means non-Catholic, hospital system in the world as part of this denomination. That is, the, hundred, or the 229 hospitals and sanitariums, the 129 nursing homes, the 128 dental clinics, the 1,475 clinics, and the countless supportive lifestyle centers we have around the world, places like we neighbor next to in Eden Valley. These weren't just businesses, places to soothe the soul or the body. Yes, they are to care for the communities, but these were birthed through the lenses of the great controversy. What else? What about our education? The largest Protestant Christian education system belongs to the Seventh-day Adventist Church in the world. Throughout the world, there are 9,419 schools with over 2 million students enrolled. But those centers of education which we meet on right now were not birthed to provide opportunities for reading, writing, and arithmetic. Beloved, don't get me wrong. I love academics. I would challenge you to be the brightest that God has enabled you to be, to read deeply and broadly, to study diligently. Oh, we have sacrificed ourselves and and pacified our bright minds with garbage. I have no problem challenging you to high academics, but that's not the purpose educational institutions were birthed for in the Adventist church. They were birthed through the lenses of the great controversy to say we need centers of education just like we need centers of health to raise up and to mobilize a generation who will help finish the great controversy. Hallelujah. What about our churches? I don't work at Avista. I don't work at Campion. Well, that's where the churches come. Churches were birthed. A denomination was born through the prophetic ministry of Ellen White and others that had a mission to go to the world and is today the fastest growing church in this country. But it's not just this country. We have 235 countries in the world recognized by the United, of the 235 countries recognized by the United Nations, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is in 212 of them, almost unparalleled except for the Catholic Church. That represents 535 languages this morning in worship, or whatever time they're on, there are 535 languages praying out, preaching out, and singing out to God. There's 95,000 churches, 72,000 companies that haven't become churches yet. Every hour, 133 people become members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and every four hours, a new church is formed. We are here in this church, on a campus, because God raised up these movements to finish the great controversy work. It will intensify, that great controversy, that great controversy will intensify. It has intensified, but it will intensify with unprecedented speed and reach levels of intensity we have not experienced before. We are on the verge of a final conflict within the great conflict. You and I, that's me and you. 
Let this context, this great controversy narrative consume us. Don't be distracted by what the prophets were not distracted by. We're pointing every direction. Almost as if we're oblivious to the fact that there's a great controversy going on for your soul and the souls of the world. Nobody is playing games except for us. So she journeys through this narrative. Five books. Patriarchs and Prophets, Prophets and Kings, Desire of Ages, Acts of the Apostles, and Great Controversy. And she gets to the final paragraph of those five books. She began with this absolute cogent, unequivocal statement that God is love and he is love to every creature in the universe. And then she ends with this, this paragraph. And I'll read the entire thing to you. you. It's worth its read. Every creature which is in heaven on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard, heard I saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth on the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. That's Revelation 5. Who? Every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. Every creature. She picks up where she left off five books earlier. Every creature is involved in this, and they're worshiping. The great controversy, hallelujah, is ended. It's, it's ended, by the way, because churches and schools and hospitals mobilized to the mission and the purpose that they were called for. The great controversy is ended. Sin and sinners are no more. The entire universe... See where she's going? Not international, but intergalactic. The entire universe is clean. One pulse of harmony and gladness beats through the vast creation. Let's keep reading. From him who created all flow life and light and gladness throughout the realms of illimitable space. From the minutest atom to the greatest world, watch out, we're coming to the end. All things, animate and inanimate, in their unshadowed beauty and perfect joy, declare, and they declare one thing, uno. God is love. Because of the schools and because of the hospitals and because of the churches, that's what the universe settles on. Now I say because of, please understand that they bear the message. It's the message that they carry. So it's nothing we have done, but we carry the message that Jesus has done. Every creature, she concludes, has been impacted by this great controversy, but every creature will come to see. What will they see? They will come to see that God is love. Ah. From the minutest atom all the way up to the greatest world, all things animate and inanimate. In their unshadowed beauty and perfect joy, declare. That's what the great controversy has been all about. A crazed angel saying, you can't trust him, you can't follow him, don't give your life to him, don't give your money to him, don't give yourself to him. He's, he's untrustworthy. But in the end, with one accord, the universe says, he's good, he's really good, and God is love. Jehoiakim, our theme text, 2 Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 20. He cries out to Ju Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem, believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will prosper. That's what the prophets are pointing us to. This narrative of scripture, that narrative of the conflict of the ages series from patriarchs and prophets to gr the great controversy, those books, this book, all are pointing us to the fact that if we would lay hold, if we would inform ourselves with their material, we will be changed, we will be transformed, we will really know what's going on. And that's, oh, that's an argument that just makes me nauseous. Oh, look, I've got to pay attention to the news. I've got, to, I've got to be part of these conversations so I know what's really going on. You don't know what's really going on when you pay attention to those sources. But when you read the prophets, you find out what's really going on. At age 18, 
just grad seniors. I, I graduated from high school. I walked out of high school, walked into my first college class, and somebody said to me, hey, have you read this book? No, I, I hadn't read many books. Up through my senior year, I, I wasted many years not reading, trying to make up for it. But I hadn't read books. So when they said, have you read this book? I, I didn't even need to look at the book before I answered no. Unless it was one of the literature-required books in English class, I hadn't read it. They handed me a book, and I read it. They said, if you're, gonna be, if you're even thinking about being a pastor, you better read this book. And I read it. The very, the very final chapter of this book tells the story of Ellen White's final time to be at the pulpit in front of the World Church, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It was a general conference. There's a general conference that happens typically every five years in our denomination where the leaders from around the world gather, and all of us can go and, 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 and watch them do business, decide and understand how the church should move forward. And this was now a story about Ellen White's last time to speak to the World Church. She's 82 years old. And she's at the pulpit. She's preaching to the world church. As she finishes, this is a woman who has given her life, her whole life, to trying to honor God and serve others. She walks away from the pulpit. She's headed to her seat when suddenly she stops. She turns around in front of this this assembly of leaders. She turns around and walks back to the pulpit and picks up the Bible she had just preached from. Extending it with two hands, she said, brothers and sisters, I commend unto you this book. Those were her final words in front of the world church. Brothers and sisters, I commend to you this book. Beloved, it is this book that tells us this story of the great controversy and God's unrelenting pursuit of our hearts and how he's going to raise up a movement that will finish this work. It's going to be done through our schools and our hospitals and our media centers and our publishing houses and our churches. It's going to be done through people like you and me. I commend to you this book. She turned around, she walked to her seat and sat down. Those were her final words to the world church. I commend to you this book. What about this book? I would implore you to read it and read it again. It's full of hope and direction in the darkness. We're dealing with issues of discouragement, despondency, depression. This book will light those dark places. Bring hope where there's hopelessness. Help where there's helplessness. Read it again and again. Memorize it. Hang it in your car. You're not too old. I'd love to just, just let you young people out early and speak to the, old people, the older people. Because sometimes they write it off. No, 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 no. I watched who came and got the flags. Hey, we'll pray for these countries. It was the younger half of our congregation. And oftentimes it's the younger half that say, oh, we need to memorize for our Sabbath schools. While those of us who have graduated, what? No longer need to memorize scripture, but I would implore you, you older people, 40 and above, so I'm one of you. Hang it in your car. Hang it in your showers. Memorize it. Put it where you can see it. Read it and read it and read it. Let these wonderful words of life come to life. Brothers and sisters, I commend to you this book. Amen. How does this book end then? How does this book tell us the great controversy ends? Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19 is our final passage, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go there in my Bible, and I, it's worth opening your Bible to. We'll have it on the screen. I know, I know. It's a lot of work to get there. Revelation 19, 
verse 6. How does this book say it ends? Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like the loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. We're going to get to verse 9 in just a minute. <laughs> but according to a study back in 2013, Mark Dingemans and his colleagues from, a, from an institute in the, in the Netherlands they did a, 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 a linguistics research. They, they, they wanted to find out what words, if any, were the most common words that were shared among the languages of this planet. The most common word, the most common word that you will find, as they said, in nearly every language is the word huh, H-U-H. In any language, they said, in most any language, you will find they use the word huh, huh, huh. But you know what else? It has been discovered then that there is another word that is often used and very similar, even if there's some nuanced pronunciation or accent. It is the word hallelujah. Hallelujah. It's used by languages around the globe. It's an international word, hallelujah, which makes sense that this group gathered in heaven worshiping the great controversies ended and they are now standing before the throne and they cry out, hallelujah. That's the one word that everybody knows. And I would argue, I would say that it is not just an international word, it is an intergalactic word. I wonder if there aren't other places that we have never met that will show up on that day, on this reunion day, to see the reunion between God and his wayward people. And they know that word. That word, that's an intergalactic word. Verse 9, then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Who's invited to the marriage? If you were God and 6,000 years ago you lost a personal, loving, covenant relationship with people you had created, but now you are going to have a reunion face-to-face -face with these people. Who would you invite to that wedding celebration? Well, you'd say, I would invite everyone. I would invite everyone I had ever created in the universe. You see, when we think of that marriage supper, that dinner, that celebration, by the way, at the conclusion of this service, we, we are all invited to the gymnasium over at the, at the, the Campion Academy gymnasium where we are going to have breakfast for lunch. And you're welcome. You, didn't, you said, I didn't bring anything. I didn't remember. You're welcome. We'll split the waffles as many ways as they go. You're welcome. But everybody's there. Everybody's there. We have thought of this moment as an international moment. Uh, I'll, I'll put a picture on the screen. We've thought of it as a kind of a, a world moment. Hey, the whole world will be gathered there. You know what I think God thinks of when he sends out the invite list, when he makes up the invite list and sends out those invites? This is who he's thinking of. He's thinking of the galaxies. Who can I bring? This is going to be a reunion of reunions. It always makes me think of the story behind the chorus, I'm going to sit at the welcome table. African Americans, one point, as you know history, were enslaved, and they were not welcome at the dinner table. And so the cries of their hearts it had a spiritual and a psychological effect. The cries of their hearts became, I'm going to sit at the welcome table one of these days. Hallelujah, they sing. I'm going to sit at the welcome table. I'm going to sit at the welcome table one of these days. We've not been welcomed there. Our masters have not let us come. But I, I'm going to sit at a welcome table one of these days. Hallelujah. And these poor sinners, this poor sinner, is going to sit at the welcome table one of these days. You're invited too. There will be a moment in which the great controversy is ended. It's over. Are you going to sit at the welcome table? 
You're invited. I'm going to invite our worship team up. I want to tell you a story. Let me put their picture on the screen. This is a story you have no doubt already read. Yarina, 21-year-old Ukrainian woman, and her now husband, Sviatlav. He's 24, she's 21. They were engaged to get married. Do we have their wedding picture? Did we put up their wedding picture? Yeah, there's their wedding picture. Yeah, we got a wedding picture. They were going to get married this summer, a beautiful Ukrainian wedding this summer, but then the, the news started rumbling. There's trouble on its way. And so they got together with their families and said, what do we do? It was decided, let's get married this week, this last week. Let's get married. Yep, let's do it. They did it, and then they both enlisted in the military. And that was that other picture you just saw. They both enlisted in the military. And so this news interview is now just happening with her because they are separated. They were married last week, but now they are separated. He's off fighting the war. And they're interviewing her. Yarina, what do you think about all this? And she tells about how they decided to come into a committed relationship, a covenant relationship with each other. They decided to get married. It's what they knew they wanted to do. And then she goes on to say that their honeymoon's on hold. They've got plans, but it's on hold because they are committed to fighting this war. And then she says, we are sure we're going to win. So they said, well, what happens when you win? She says, then when the controversy is over, I'm not making this up, this is what she says, when the controversy is over, we're going to celebrate. What? What? What she just outlined is exactly the invitation to us today. What is it? Enter into a committed covenant relationship with God. Make the decision. I'm yours, God. I'm all yours. I'm unreservedly yours. That's what marriage is. That's what she did. What happens next? Put the honeymoon on hold and go finish the war. What? Number three, we are sure we're going to win. Absolutely guaranteed we're going to win this great controversy. And number four, when this controversy is over, we're going to celebrate. Amen.
El Señor te bendiga y te guarde. El Señor te mira con agrado y te extiende su amor. El Señor te muestra su favor y te concede la paz. Hasta que regresamos en alabanza y estudio. Amén.